KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. John Jennings just made Black History Month better. I've created a brand new black superhero for Marvel. That's what it is. Get ready to talk about cosmic superheroes, crowdfunding a horror anthology, and celebrating comics. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. John Jennings has been a guest on Cinema Junkie multiple times. We've discussed ethnogothic horror, dissected Jordan Peele's Us, and unpacked the contents of Candyman. I love talking about horror with him, and I'm excited about his upcoming horror anthology called Shook. Jennings is a Hugo winner, Eisner winner, New York Times bestselling author, curator, graphic novelist, editor, professor, scholar, and design theorist. I get exhausted just looking at all he's doing on his Instagram feed. He'll be appearing on a panel about horror at Black Comics Day in San Diego on February 12th, so I'm using that as an excuse to chat with him again. John Jennings is professor of media and cultural studies at the University of California, Riverside. He's also the director of Abrams Comic Arts imprint, Megascope, which publishes graphic novels focused on the experiences of people of color. For his recent five-part miniseries, Silver Surfer Ghostlight, he drew on an old Marvel Comics character. His original name is Dr. Albie Harper. Uh, he was created by Stanley and Chalabashima and appeared in 1969 in a Silver Surfer story. Basically what happens is... Albie Harper saves the world. He, he gives his life to save the planet. And Silver Surfer is uh, enamored by this and so humbled by this, he actually buries him. And put this, he puts this, this cosmic flame on his grave to burn eternally to mark him as a hero. And throughout the, the Silver Surfer's like, you know, tenure as, as a superhero in Marvel Comics, he often flashes back to this as a turning point in how he feels about the human race, right? I was going through this and I asked Marvel, I was like, well, this is a cosmic flame. On, on his grave, like, so if you know anything about comics, then you know the Fantastic Four got their powers from cosmic radiation, right? And I was like, this seems like an origin story to me. <laughs> you know, why can't we bring this guy back? They said yes. And so I concocted this wild story about uh, Dr. Albie Harper, and I brought him back as a black superhero, uh, as a superhero called Ghostlight. And of course, the term Ghostlight comes from the theater. So a lot of theaters during the pandemic were shut down. And so they would leave the ghost lights on. The ghost light is left to show that the show is going to come back, that the show will go on. I thought it would be a great name for a new superhero. I remember having the hardest time explaining things about Silver Surfer to my young son. Yeah. Because it's kind of, it's like really sad and existential on a yeah, lot of yeah, levels. Yeah, he's a very, yeah, he's a very like Shakespearean Hamlet-like, <laughs> you know. Yeah, because he gives up, give up his whole planet to set, you know, and he becomes a herald for this giant being that eats planets and uh, called Galactus. And then he decides that no more. So he, he basically helps Earth not be eaten by this giant godlike creature. And in doing so, is imprisoned on the planet for many years. He's basically, he can't leave. Galactus, oh, you like these people? Just stay with him. So he's kind of, a, you know, he comes, goes from like being enslaved to being a prisoner, you know? And I think because of that, a lot of Black folk like really kind of projected onto that character. You know, you talk to a lot of black men, they really like the Silver Surfer. And I think characters like the Hulk or Beast or like Nightcrawler also get that, you know, as far as like the projection of a type of blackness onto their bodies, you know. 
because they are othered in a particular way, very visually, you know, or so, or they're outcasts of society, you know, that kind of thing. Well, that also seems to be part of the attraction with horror, because so much of horror deals with this sense of the other, either yeah. being afraid of the other or identifying with the other. That's right. That's right. The consumption of the of the other body, you know, very much to much the technology of monstrosity is is very connected to that idea. The consumption of these other bodies, there's a desire and a repulsion simultaneously. Ghostlight is available now with issue two arriving next month. I need to take one quick break and then I'll be back with the rest of my interview with John Jennings. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. As with Rodney Barnes, Jennings is a multi-hyphenate creator. Jennings, Barnes, and Kevin Grievous will all be appearing on a panel called Get Shooked, the new masters of horror at this year's Black Comics Day. The panel takes its name from the upcoming crowdfunded horror anthology called Shook, in which all three will have stories. I asked Jennings about the origins for Shook. Well, uh, Shook is a anthology of horror very much influenced by old school like EC Comics. Uh, just a little bit of background that EC Comics stands for Educational Comics. It was a company that was created by William Gaines or, or run by William Gaines. Uh, I mean, he's kind of a comics pioneer, but his father was as well. He's one of the founding fathers of DC Comics, actually. So what they used to do is they would do these morality tales, you know, but put them in a the form of horror comics. So a lot of times they'd have like very short, you know, over the top, gory <laughs> morality tales with a high ending at the end. So if you've ever seen like Tales from the Crypt or ever heard of Vault of Horror or these types of things, then you are, you're looking at what some of the aspirations were. But of course, some of the other aspirations, of course, are um, Warren Magazine's uh, comics that they did back in the 60s and 70s. So creepy and eerie magazine. Essentially, it's like the setup is like st stories about morality that usually have like a interlocutor like a like a like a narrator or something right so all of us grew up reading this type of stuff and being interested in this kind of stuff uh i was approached by uh bradley gold and marcus flowers to participate in this uh they wanted to do a, a black horror anthology and i had always wanted to do something called shook i thought it was a great title for something you know i had done a show actually in atlanta called shook it's just like it's something i wanted to do for a while i want to do it as a horror magazine but who has the time to do that and so i don't actually so teaming up with someone else, it was, seemed like the best thing to do. And so we decided to call it Shook, uh, Black Horror Anthology. And before you know it, we had a bunch of pretty high power, you know, uh, African-American men who were interested in the same thing. Of course, as soon as I came on the project, you know, there were other people who were already interested, like Kevin Grievous, David Walker, I think had already signed up. The first thing I noticed was, you know, there were no women involved with the project. <laughs> and I was like, what is going on, dudes? So, you know, the follow-up project will be a would be all women actually you know that we were cognizant of that but it's but it's a collection of scary stories by you know people called by black men in this particular case so and what is the appeal of horror for you what do you feel that that genre allows you to do that maybe you can't do elsewhere or that connects with audiences in different ways some of the first stories that we ever hear are scary stories you know uh even if you think about stuff like mythology uh and folk tales that were told around a campfire. A lot of them are morality tales. It's like, oh, you know, the headless goat will get you if you do these things. You need to brush your teeth or the spiny periwinkle. You know, you know, we'll get you. you know, it's all like parents would do this kind of stuff to kids. Let's get a hell out of them, like boogeyman's and 
El Kukui and all these different things. Like they use them to actually like think about like well, what's right and what's wrong. People are scared straight by these stories to a certain degree. But also, you know, they give us a, a sense of distance from social issues, like things that actually really do bother us. Um, it's almost like being afraid in a, in a in a safe space, you know. I mean, which one would you would you rather deal with? Like the certainty of danger, you know, walking down the street as an African American man these days, or watching Scream and Scream 2, you know, that kind of stuff. So it's the same reason we get on roller coasters, right? We like the titillation, we like to feel safe, but we also, um, you know, want to do it. It's kind of an escape. It's, and everybody's not into it. You know, that's the other thing I think it's, a, you know, the predilection is I've been into horror since I was a kid. My, my mother was, is a massive horror fan. We still talk horror and adventure stories all the time. She's still a big horror fan. Like she'll watch anything multiple times too, by the way, like she's a she will, she's a repeat offender. She's like, if she likes a movie, she'll watch like 10,000 times, you know? And, uh, and so will I actually. And so, um, and that's some of the appeal to it. I think as a creator now, because of some of the popularity of horror and social issues that has been spurred on by, by movies like Get Out, for instance, or like, or shows like Lovecraft Country, they allow you to actually talk about, you know, these particular types of oppressive, monstrous things that have actually happened to people of color in our country with a certain amount of metaphor and distance, you know, and that's very appealing, you know, so it's just as a, as a, as a writer for me. Well, and also does that sense of metaphor and distance also make it more effective in maybe getting people who are not familiar with these issues or not aware of things like the Tulsa race riots or, you know, things that happened for real, um, Using horror, is that a good means of kind of like opening people's eyes to real things, but kind of sneaking around and, and getting them to become aware of it? I definitely think so. You, you mentioned the Tulsa Race Master, for instance. Uh, I was shocked at how many people had never heard of it, you know, until fairly recently. But the, the Watchmen television show, right, was uh, was it was on HBO, which is kind of like a sequel to the, to the comic book, The Watchmen by Alan Moore and um, Dave Gibbons. Uh, so, yeah, a lot of people responded to that because they thought it was, they thought it was made up. And so once they realized like, oh my God, this actually happened in our country, it totally like shed a new light on things. So yes, you know, it is a really interesting way to teach the history, you know, especially since now there's been so much pushback against things that are, that don't necessarily show our country in the, in the most positive light. The truth of the matter is, is that most countries come out of like good and, and bad intentions, you know, our particular country. A lot of the capital that was used to create it was was based on you know the, the enslavement of Africans. And that's the truth. You know that's how we started. You know that's not where we are now. But not telling students that, as far as like the background, I think is a disservice to you know the the kind of underlying ideas. You know everybody wants to be a hero. And a lot of times our country hasn't been, and that's that's the that's the truth. <laughs> so anyway, and that's sometimes that's horrific as well. So. Well, and you've been involved with comics where there is, where the comics draw a lot on real world horror or images from real world horror, like Box of Bones. And mm -hmm. so um, I assume that this is going to do some similar things to that, drawing on kind of with these morality tales, drawing on some real world horror. Yeah, yeah, I think so. it definitely seems to be so. I know for a fact, even though that David Walker is Blackenstein, Blackenstein's, whatever he's going to call it, is like, is obviously dealing with like issues around around violence against black men. I know Bradley Barnes's piece definitely is very anti-racist in how it's put together. My two stories, I have one story in the call, it's called The Breaks. And it's really about like 
the unfortunate demise of like pure hip hop culture, as I use, uh, and also to um, it's kind of a, a vilification of, of the Reagan era to a certain degree too. You know, go about the AIDS epidemic and things of that nature. But it's not necessarily stated that way. But you know that a lot of the a lot of that came out of just turning a blind eye into the AIDS crisis for us during his presidency. The other the other story I did is an anti-domestic violence narrative. Yeah, so that's the other story. So it's, it's both of them are morality tales to a certain degree. The first one is actually more about, it's more of an elegy, I would say, about the death of a particular, or, or the shifting of a particular culture and, and basically how it changed the way we looked at the world, but also, you know, some of the things that actually kind of led to its demise in some ways, or like it's, uh, not really demise, hip hop culture is still around, but it's just like, it's just not what it was, right? And uh, the other one is, of course, a very personal narrative about like just violence against women in domestic spaces. Just why, you know, so. And I saw you give a talk a while ago on ethnogothic horror mm -hmm. and explain a little bit about what that is and why it kind of needs to be separated out uh, as a subgenre in horror. Uh, and I'm going to try wrestling with this a lot, too. Like when, when Stanford Carpenter and I were thinking about the ethnogothic, it was re it was a reaction to the fact that when uh, a few years ago, when Afrofuturism was coming to bear and actually was becoming a mainstream term, it started to seem like everything that was magical and black or like sci-fi and black was being pushed under Afrofuturism. It became like this big umbrella term, you know, and we're like, well, it was it was it was starting to issue genre, you know what I'm saying? Like for us, something like Kindred, you know, I guess you could think of it as Afrofuturist. I tend to think it was more gothic because of the tropes that are embedded in the story. You know, the idea of the doppelgangers there, there's mystical aspects, there's body horror, you know, there's this weird, like, twisted love quadrant triangle, I don't even know what you want to call it, that actually feels more like a gothic narrative, you know, and also too, like at the end of it, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily pessimistic, but it's definitely not, uh, it leans, I mean, it leans more towards a nihilistic endpoint, you know. You know, at the end of it, it's not like, oh, we defeated slavery. You know, it's like, no, slavery still pervades and it's destroyed this woman's life. The end. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so it's like, and so we're thinking about like, how can we unpack the demons and the monsters that actually heart black folk and then move to an Afro future? So I sort of think about Afro future as a, as a destination and not just a genre or like a, uh, what do you call it? A cultural production method, right? So I always use Erica Badu's song, Bag Lady, as an, as an example. Uh, if you have this, this song, it's about this, uh, Erica Badu is, is watching this, this woman who's homeless, who, you know, who has all these bags that she's dragging behind her as she's trying to get to this bus, right? And so she's like, you need to let those bags go. So it's a, it's a metaphor for like letting go of, you know, pain and struggle and things of that nature. In those bags though, there was like, oh, here's uh, Jim Crow is in that bag and the uh, Tuskegee experiments are in that bag. And, you know, all these different horrible things are in that bag. And all you have to let those go. You have to name those things and then move to the future. So that we were thinking about the ethnogothic as a, as a cathartic means to like deal with those things readily. Now, recently I've been thinking about what I've been calling race crafty and horror, which I've been very interested in because, you know, you're familiar with Lovecraft and probably like Lovecraft and cosmic horror. I bumped into a friend of mine who said, you know what, if you think about cosmic horror, you can actually use the black experience of racism as like the cosmic awe aspect of like black horror, that kind of thing. It becomes this monstrous thing that seems inescapable and life crushing, that kind of idea. I tend to not agree with that. I think it's pessimistic, but there is this book by, there's two sisters named Fields and they, and they did this book named uh, Racecraft. And it's about thinking about, or, you know, racism as a kind of spell, 
you know, they're like, it's kind of like belief based, like witchcraft. So they call it racecraft, you know, in order for you to actually make it work and actually believe in it, even because it's a fictional structure, right? And so I was thinking like, man, what's a really interesting concept. So I actually, I, I took the fact that the, the Lovecraft's man is Lovecraft and I call it, created this thing called racecraft in horror, which is kind of like if you take what they call the Afro surreal, which is about the strangeness of blackness in everyday life. And then mix it with a cosmic horror aesthetic to a certain degree. And that's kind of what I've been thinking about. Examples like Box of Bones, for instance, or Lovecraft Country, the comic book Root, I think also does that. And then also things like Victor Laval's really great novella, The Ballad of Black Tom, which actually remixes the horror Red Hook and turns into this really interesting idea around remixing race through a, a Lovecraftian lens. So I know that was a, lot, that was a big answer. I think it's a very utilitarian thing. I've been thinking about genre and thinking about theory around it for a while now. And, and because like it, it just keeps popping up and it's effective, you know, but like why are people dealing with these ideas like this, you know? Well, and it's also interesting you bring up Lovecraft because he's such a interesting figure for creating horror. There's so much about what he created that strikes a real nerve with everyone. But then, you know, he also comes from this place where he was xenophobic and racist and was uh he was all the things he was like yeah xenophobe you know <laughs> classes racist sexist all of the things right yeah but what's interesting uh, you know what's interesting what i find interesting about him is that he sort of turned all the things that were sort of negative about him into something in art that helped us to kind of see what could fuel those kind of points of view and mm -hmm. Like it's fascinating work and I, I you know, but it, it is something that, you know, when you bring up Lovecraft, sometimes people, you know, push back or mm -hmm. don't know, don't know how to kind of deal with him. Yeah, yeah. It was funny. I remember being at a, at a dinner party once in an art show opening and I was talking to his art critic and she was, and we came across, I was we talked about horror and mentioned Lovecraft and I mentioned his racism and she just basically, oh, it's just, it was just like a, it's like, no, 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 I'm not saying you're racist. I'm just saying that, you know, his work is racist and it actually permeates the work, right? Of course, as he neared the end of his life, he, his, his views started to change, you know, which I thought was really cool. I, I often think like if he hadn't died so young that his work would have shifted according to the times a little bit more, you know, but who's to say? But uh, he did, he does give us these tools to actually examine uh, monstrosity and, and, and symbol, symbolism, right? I mean, so... Some things are actually overt, like his poetry <laughs> about black folk. He was not a very big fan back in the day, but the way that he uses metaphor about like what, what the monsters symbolize and the technology of monsters and the technology, technology of the cosmic and, and that kind of thing is actually extremely smart. The other thing he gave us, of course, is the idea of an open source uh, catalog of work. Like he, he actively encouraged people to write within his Cthulhu mythos. For instance, a lot of his, a lot of Cthulhu mythos were actually like uh, perpetuated later, you know, by colleagues and friends of his, right? And other writers. So it's an open source creation space, which I thought was really interesting. A lot of people think the necro Necronomicon is a real thing, you know, <laughs> because of that, right? It's not, it's not a real thing made up. Yeah. Anyway. And because you're going to be coming to Black Comics Day, talk a little bit about kind of what appeals to you as an artist and a writer working in comics. What do you feel that it offers you that you're not finding elsewhere or that's exciting to work with? Well, I mean, I feel like once you start making comics, it's in your bones anyway. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it's a very, very immediate medium. And what I mean by that is you can actually, if you can 
make an image. And you don't necessarily have to draw a comic. I mean, draw, draw a cartoon or whatever. You can actually take pictures and, and put words to them and stuff. If you can tell a story in sequence and you can make a comic, you just take it down to your, you know, get it to your copy shop or whatever and, and print up 20 copies of your little comic book and you become a comic book publisher. So, so the, you know, it's that simple, actually. You know, of course, you write this editing and some tweaking, you have different levels. But that's how, that's like zine culture, right? You just make something and you, and you copy it and make it, you know, and that's really cool. The other thing is that it's, there's no medium that speaks so, uh, so much to the surreal as comics do. I feel like it's a dream, it's a dreamlike, you know, space. I mean, film can have that quality to it, but for some reason, the way that comics do with symbols seems like so inherently uh, smart and like recognizable to people. You know, it's something about the medium that actually relates to folk on a, on a very visceral level. And the other thing is that everything on the page can tell a story. From like the line quality to the color to the to the, the typeface you use, everything has symbolic meaning, and, it's, and I think that's really interesting too. So it's a it's a little bit like poetry to me. You know, I feel like comics is like poetry and yeah, a little bit of theater actually too. You know, it has a theatrical quality to it. You know, I, I think I think there's something to be said about the fact that back during the Blogville uh, era, you would actually have chalk talks where people would actually draw, well, you know, on on the stage like really fast, <laughs> you know. And have these job talks. It's really interesting. Anyway, so yeah, that's, that's one of the things that appeals, appeals to me. I, I mean, I've been a fan of comics since I was a kid. And little did I know that it would turn into something that was part of my career. You know, my main career, of course, I'm a teacher and professor, but I do a lot of comics. Like, I, I basically teach comics, I write them, I edit them, I theorize about them. <laughs> you know, I publish them. It's just pretty crazy, you know. And in revisiting kind of that EC format, what was that process of going back to EC Comics and saying, like, let's do an anthology series kind of like them? And did you feel that you wanted to tap into exactly what it was? Or did you find new things that you wanted to explore kind of within that format? You know, it's funny because I we didn't ex I think I think so the the Black Anthology is is definitely inspired by EC, but we would we kind of went about our own ways and made and put the other creative teams. Uh, I sort of wish that we did have an interlocutor to introduce the the uh, the different things, you know. But I, I could see us not agreeing who that would be. <laughs> you know, yeah. I, me and my friend Stacy Robinson had this idea to do Southern like Black Southern horror story. We wanted to call it Crazy Watermelon Tales. And our interlocutor narrator was going to call the scarecropper. <laughs> and he's gonna be like this little tar baby, like scary tar baby, like scarecrow creature, you know. But you know, that's that was gonna be fun. As far as like the things we learned from the form, I think we've been so busy trying to trying to create it. The other thing too is they kickstarted this they kickstarted the project too, we raised like fifty two thousand dollars to print to make the thing. I think that was a lot of the focus. But yeah, I mean I I, I don't I'm always thinking about the, the the anthology format. I mean, I think it's a really smart format. It's definitely like a um, part of the backbone of genre fiction, I believe. You know, you find a lot of new talent there and stuff like that. And also it relates directly to the pulp aspects of it. But I, th I think that the inspiration is not as direct as, uh, as some would see. I mean, but I will say like something like the, Sh the Shook logo is definitely um, inspired by the Shock Suspense Stories logo. It's kind of like it's derived from it. So that's pretty cool. And in addition to writing and being an artist and being a teacher, you do a lot of curation of comics works. What are the challenges of that particular aspect? Oh, there's so many there because I found the biggest problem is that 
there's never been a space like the one we created at Megascope. And because of that, there's an overflow of so many ideas by so many people. We can't publish every day. It's a slow process too. Making comics is arduous. You know, it's very difficult. It's, it's hard work actually sitting down and drawing comics, you know. And so a lot of times, you know, we're backed up and, you know, we have all these, these projects coming through and you have to read scripts and you have to like, you know, look at, dip, you know, look at your deadlines and, you know, it's, 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 it's hard. I mean, I, I think we've been really fortunate. We've done now like eight books so far since we made, since over the last couple of years, there's some books that are hella late actually too, you know, because people schedule shift and they, you know, once you get an advance, they don't get the rest of your advance and the book is done. And if you do a 250 page book. That could be a while before you get to rest your money. It's just, you know, there's these kinds of concerns. Life's financial, trying to keep morale up and keep pushing through. COVID was a huge, like, don't, don't start a, a, a imprint in the middle of a global pandemic. Maybe that would help. <laughs> but on the, on the flip side of that, you know, we've actually had two Ivan nominations, you know, a Locus Award nomination, mm-hmm. and now an image, NAACP Image Award nomination. So, you know, we've been, making good books. We're just trying to get people to see. The other thing is like getting people to, to cut through the noise and see what we're doing. But yeah, I think that's going to happen too. So, but yeah, those are the cha- those are the main challenges. And how does it feel in terms of the the artists that you're considering and the, the, the talent that you're seeing come by? Like what kind of things are you seeing that either you're finding inspiring or that, you know, you're interested in, in pursuing more? Well, I'm always, I'm always excited to see like different styles and different types of story ideas that are coming out of the BIPOC, you know, creative space, you know? Yeah. I just think like the sheer diversity is just wonderful to see. And don't get me wrong. I love superheroes. I think they're awesome, you know, but you know, we've seen what that looks like, you know, from a particular standpoint, I want to see what that looks like from another standpoint. I want to see different drawing styles. I want to see strange books. I think comic books should be strange personally. You know, I want to make the weirdest things, you know, there you can do anything. So why would you just do something that's really simple and, you know, mainstream, do some odd, you know, odd and unforgettable, you know, that's what I'm trying to go for. Uh, but yeah, I, I think there's some really experimental work that's being done. I'm hoping that we can get it out. The thing, one of the biggest, this is another challenge too, is like, the balance between art and commerce is always a big issue, right? I mean, you can't make make a weird ass book and then someone won't buy it. <laughs> you know, this is really strange. I don't know if I like. Ooh, this looks like this looks like Batman. I like it. You know, so it's that kind of thing. <laughs> but it's like, okay, if I could get you to sit still and like really look at what we're doing, you'd be like, this book is kind of beautiful. Yeah. So those are things that are happening. And also another problem too that I've come across and something that I'm really kind of struggling with is the fact that I'm a 52 year old black man. And I have particular tastes, you know, and you work with who you know. And so, you know, we need to diversify our diversity. I want to have more, more folk color from various backgrounds on the line. But because when I think about like, oh, I want to do a, a graphic novelization of the passage, it's a very black book, <laughs> you know, it's about slavery and it's like magical realist slavery book, right? I want to get more things on the line. So that's what I'm inspired by. I want to see like diversity of like creators uh, that we can put through. Mind you, the only thing too is like we can only do four books a year, so that's also a challenge, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah. Anyway, there you have it. It's difficult, but it's wonderful. It's a lot of work. We're doing some great books, but it's oof, you know it's a lot of work. And tell me a little bit about the panel that's coming up at Black Comics Day, and your co-panelists. Well, I mean, it's they call it the New Masters of Horror. You know, we're old heads at horror. You know, Kevin Greenius uh, co-created the Underworld 
movie franchise, actually the one about vampires and werewolves fighting with Kate Beckinsale, you know, that one. So he's like co-creator of that. Ronnie Barnes uh, is a award-winning television producer. He worked on the Boondocks. He's producing Winning Time for HBO. You know, he worked on the, on the, on the, uh, the Wu-Tang Clan TV show, but he's a humble, massive horror fan. And uh, he writes great horror. Like, if you already killed his book, Philadelphia, for instance, is fantastic. So, and he just put out Blackula, you know, Blackula graphic novel. He got the rights from MGM to do this. I'm like, what? It's crazy. So, yeah, so I guess this is us talking about our love of horror and some of the same things we talk about here. Um, I was surprised that they didn't know they were going to do the panel. So I was like, oh, that's cool. I mean, the three of us who are doing this horror related work. So it makes sense to do a panel like that. So, yep. All right. I want to thank you very much for talking about Black Comics Day and about your own work. Thank you. And I'm looking forward to finishing up that story so we can get it to press. <laughs> so, like, along with volume two of Box of Bones. Uh, anyway, so much stuff. That was John Jennings. Issue one of his Silver Surfer Ghost Light is currently available at your favorite comic book store. Jennings will appear at Black Comics Day Sunday, February 12th for Get Shook, the new Masters of Horror. I'll be back tomorrow with my interview with Kevin Grievous. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. Remember to check out Cinema Junkie's archives, including a collection of podcasts highlighting black films and filmmakers over the past century. You can find videos and more podcasts at kpbs.org slash cinemajunkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend, because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next Film Fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, a journey through computation, data analysis, and real-world applications. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.